Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm here with my co-host today, Carter Laren. Hello, Carter. Hey, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited about today. Yeah. Um, we get to speak to two ladies today whom we've already spoken to each one of them individually, but then they went off and did this awesome thing, which is collaborate on a book. So uh, now we get to have both of them on. Um, our first guest is uh, Dr. Linda Blade. Uh, Dr. Blade holds a PhD in kinesiology, if I can say that correctly, from Simon Fraser University in Canada. She's also a former Canadian champion in track and field, the heptathlon. She spent the past 30 years working as a sports performance professional, designing and implementing training programs for athletes across the spectrum from beginner to elite in over 15 sports. She currently serves as president of the Board of Athletics Alberta, which is the Track and Field Association in the province of Alberta, Canada. And most recently, she co-authored the book Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport, along with our other guest, Barbara Kay. Barbara Kay um, has been a weekly opinion columnist for Canada's National Post since 2003. For the last few years, she's also been a weekly contributor to the Post Millennial which I know a lot of people read in our audience, and monthly to the Canadian Jewish News. Barbara appears twice weekly, Monday and Thursday mornings, on SiriusXM's post-media channel with host Anthony Furry to discuss current events and ideas. Her writing also appears in Quillette.com, The Dorchester Review, a Canadian history magazine, and C2C Journal, a conservative ideas magazine, amongst others. Barbara is also the author of three other books. So welcome to both of you. Uh, I guess we should say who's who. Linda, why don't you tell us how people can follow you and where they can find you online, and then and then Barbara can tell us. Well, hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me. Um, my name's Linda Blade, and I go as Coach Blade on Twitter, at Coach Blade. Uh, and you can find our book, this is the lovely book, at unsporting.com. So those are the key elements. Excellent. Cool. And Barbara, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Uh, they can find me uh, uh, almost every week in the National Post. Uh, they can find me in the Post Millennial, as you noted. And um, for the last two years, I've been a monthly columnist for the Epoch Times. Uh, so I guess your, I think your CV was a little bit out of date. The Canadian a little Jewish, bit out of date. Yeah, yeah, the Canadian Jewish News, alas, uh, is defunct as a print magazine since last year. So it's, it is online, but I'm no longer opinionating for them. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's where they can find me. Okay. Well, thanks for the, thanks for the update. Um, so why don't we just start by um, having one of you just tell us a little bit about what the book is about and why you wrote it. Linda. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book is about um, the idea that um, biological male has now been deemed um, that it's appropriate for that biological male to self-identify as a woman and participate with female athletes in women's sports. And um, this is a policy that and a, and a reality that we're facing now in women's sports that is absolutely, in my opinion, unethical, unsafe, and absolutely unfair. Um, and so somebody had to say something, and I am in a good position to say it. I have a PhD in kinesiology, sports sciences. I'm a professional coach and have been for 35 years. I'm the president of an association 
where we were um, tasked with coming up with either accepting this policy or having to provide a, a different policy. Um, and actually, I was an athlete, so I understand, you know, the difference between males and females in sports. So, you know, it's my whole life has been involved with sports. And now in leadership position, somebody had to take a stand, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I can't believe I'm going to ask this question in 2020. It's it's mm-hmm. embarrassing. What's the difference between men and women? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm so glad you asked. This is important, though, because I've started to see, I mean, the ACLU, which I know you you guys are probably both familiar with the trajectory they've taken, but um, I see them putting out propaganda that's telling people, and then I see people repeating it, that there's no biological difference. So Okay, so here's the thing. (laughs) Even in the womb, even in gestation, there are differences that begin to happen when there's the presence of the SRY gene. XY, um, as far as males, female is the basic, you know, human model. And then if there happens to be the SRY gene and testosterone, then there's a differentiation into the male, uh, person. Uh, and so when babies are born, the boy has a penis and the girl has a vagina and, and already from there, if you look at the growth charts for babies, even by the NH, uh, like the, the NIHS, the national standards, for growth and development, they've already got male and female, you know, growth chart. So even from infancy, there are differences. Um, and then through mid childhood, there are, you know, some differences uh, between boys and girls, especially uh, in the upper body. So lower body things like running and jumping, they're kind of, they can be comparable, although boys tend to be better than girls. Uh, but upper body strength and upper body, I would call it leveraging. Boys have a distinct advantage to the point where if you look at the ball throw, even from ages five, six, seven, all the way up to the puberty stage, boys still have about a 15% advantage in the upper body strength. Uh, But then after puberty, then it starts to expand. All the differences start to expand and to the point where when uh, males and females um, become adults, um, the the men are heavier by 20 to 40%. The, the, by the same amount, 20 to 40 percent, uh, males have an, a vastly, um, a, well, a vast advantage in terms of their cardiovascular system, like the the way the oxygen can get to the to the into the blood and into the muscles. Um, they have much greater strength, from 30 to 60 percent more strength. Um, and there's some expressions of strength, especially when you add it up across the joints, like in punching ability, for example. Men have 160% advantage. Wow. So it, wow. it's, it depends on how, you know, and so just running, endurance running in itself, there's maybe about 10 to 15% advantage. So the difference between men and women ranges anywhere from like 10% all the way up to 160%, depending on what we call biomotor capacity you're talking about. But they definitely have bigger hearts, bigger lungs, longer limbs. Uh, different structures in their shoulders to allow them to actually express and leverage strength better. And so basically, this is what we talk about when we say that sexual dimorphism exists in humans. Dimorphism means distinct morphologies. So it's like the design, the actual design of the body, whether it's the skeleton or anything else about that body, there are like 6,000 biological differences, variables from the, you know, microscopic nano 
you know, all the very smallest ar particles and machinery inside the cells, all the way out to the, ana uh, the anatomical, so we're overview design. Men have a distinctly different body than females. And even if, uh, we'll get into this later, but even if you sort of reduce the amount of testosterone in the blood or something, doesn't mean it makes the heart smaller, the lungs smaller, take a couple inches off the length of the bones. Like there is just no such thing as a male body transitioning into the female sex. Um, you cannot change sex. You can change how you look. You can have plastic surgery and stuff. But to truly change sex, you would have to have every single one of billions and trillions of cells change from XX chromosome to XY or the other way around, XY to XX. Every single cell in the body would have to be replaced by a female cell. I mean, it's just literally, we don't even have, we would do not have anywhere close to the technology to do that. So there's just this vast, vast difference again, between males and females. And, um, you know, if you even reduce testosterone, it's just a little percentage, you maybe go from 50% stronger, a man would be 50% stronger down to maybe 55 or 45% stronger. It would, it just doesn't make that big of a difference. That's what I was going to ask. Cause I see a lot of, uh, the, uh, people who are pushing for, uh, biological men to compete in women's sports if, if they identify mm -hmm. as trans women i see them saying well they're you know if they take hormones then it'll reduce it'll reduce any advantage that they have and it, it that always strikes me as kind of magical thinking that you just take this magical hormone and everything you <laughs> nowhere, <laughs> so, it's nowhere close it's just yeah. nowhere close it's just there's this is not a thing and shame on all of the sport um, authorities, including International Olympic Committee, for allowing this and overlooking the biological facts and not really looking at it closely enough and just maybe going on some sort of, well, we can talk about that later. There are specific reasons why maybe they made this decision. But um, as we wrote in the book, um, from the Olympic Committee all the way down to, you know, from all the stages. So if it starts with the Olympic Committee, then the next stage, which are the national federations of each country, they then have an excuse to do this and allow males into women's sports. And then the provincial associations and the community sports and the school sports, everybody follows that lead. It's like a cascading sequence of acceptance of some this ideology and this rule that absolutely makes no sense. Yeah. So I just want to throw out an analogy because this is kind of how I think of it biologically and I want to know if it's correct. I kind of think of it as like the car has been built and what yeah. what kind of body you put on the car, you can alter the the body of the car, but the engine's been built. And so mm -hmm. what even if you were could replace uh, a lot of even if you could replace the cells, you're still going to have yeah. the same lung capacity and heart right. size and yeah. muscle mass and all these things that were built based on the genetics of the person mm -hmm. exactly. prior to birth even. Well, I think that that's. That's, that's a good analogy because if you look under the hood, you might be able to reduce a, a V8 engine to a V6 engine, but if all the other engines that you're competing against could never be higher than V4s, then it's still, <laughs> it's still an yeah. advantage. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a couple things. I there's, an, there's one other thing I want to do, which is a little bit of devil's advocate, but this is the, the wedge that I hear that convinces kind of normal people that maybe there's a there's some there's 
rationale behind this. And that wedge is, well, the Venn diagram between biological males and men is not 100%. There's this intersex, there's a, a, a tiny fraction of the population that actually is born and I'll put, I'll say the wrong body in quotes, but we'll say with like one set or, or maybe even not X, Y, like X, X, Y, or, or some, uh, some variation there, or, mm-hmm. or bo- born with both genitalia or born with a brain configuration that doesn't match their body. Can you talk about that and why that matters or doesn't here? Right. So that's what we call, um, it's commonly you, uh, term used for that is called intersex, um, but it's really disorder of sexual development. So DSD, disorder, disorder of sexual development. So in terms of sex, the biological sex, it's the 46, set, uh, the core chromosome. So we say 46 DSD. And it is true that some, a very small, like maybe 0.01 or 0.02% of the population is born with um, ambiguous genitalia. Um, and so, um, it's a disorder. So you would say, but when they look closely, like if the doctors do a genetic test, somebody, even within that small, tiny group, there's either, there's two possibilities. You're either 46 DSD XY, which means you're a male with a disorder or 46 DSD XX, which is either that you're a female with a disorder. So you may have, let's see, if you're a uh, male, 46 uh, DSDXY, you would have be a situation like Castor's where you have the male, the male gene and you actually have testes embedded deeply within your abdomen. So you really are biologically male, but then because certain things didn't finish or something happened there where maybe parts of the external genitalia look slightly um, male, but slightly female, because remember the female template is the baseline template for human beings. So, so in the utero, it's female plus extra is male. Okay. So then, so maybe there wasn't a complete, um, complete sort of finishing of the distinction into the male body, even though they do have the advantage of having testes there that can produce a certain amount more testosterone and androgenize the body so even when you say there's these people that are in between they're not really in between they're either one with a disorder or the other with a disorder so Mm -hmm. it's still binary with a disorder so the reason there's not someone with both gametes well they can't have both gametes right so they can have what appears to be very few can appear to have almost fully formed both parts as far as like testes and then you know maybe looks like a vulva or something but the fact is, is that as, when you look carefully enough at the genetics and at the, this person medically, they really still are, their bodies are either organized around producing sperm or they're organized around producing egg. And not a single human, we can say one thing for sure, even despite the various sort of, um, very sort of small percentage of disorders like that, intersex, even despite those people, there's not a single human being on the face of the earth that has come about into existence other than the union of a sperm with an egg. So there are some, you know, disorders of sexual development where they're just sterile and they can't reproduce. But ultimately for the propagation of the human species, we still are sexually dimorphic. 
there still is only a binary male or female. So, um, so really to use, and here's what I find disingenuous, is that the trans community, trans activists, use this small percentage of people with disorder as an excuse to sneak in like a Trojan horse into the women's category. When we're talking about trans, we're not talking even about intersex athlete. We're talking about a fully formed male who decides or who feels like the uh, psychological need to present as a woman. And then that person is seeking access to the fully formed female category. So it's a, usually a fully formed male and then wanting to get into the female category. So they're using the existence of these remote sort of, you know, medical conditions like intersex to justify or say that humans have a spectrum and they're not binary. And that's absolutely just taking the science and twisting it all up to confuse people. Yeah. Right. And the athletes we're talking about here, um, like uh, what was her name? Carrie yeah, or any of these athletes that are in the news, they're not intersex athletes. They are biological males. Exactly. Who've declared they are their males trying to womanhood. identify as female as women, and and so they're they piggyback on the intersex condition, and it drives intersex people, the true intersex people population, find it objectionable that just a normal male who was born male and you know just suddenly has transitioned in terms of their their desire what they want to do what they how they want to present that that person would use their medical disorder as the excuse to do that is really objectionable yeah can you can one of you speak to um what are some of the rules? Because I know we were talking about, just to go back for a second, about uh, the argument that, well, if a biological male takes certain hormones, then he's going to remove any natural advantage he has and how that's not true. <laughs> but I've seen that put forward. Is there is there some some sort of consensus shaking out like at the Olympics or, or at the college level or at the high school level? Do they have any rules for people who are transitioning? Do they say you have to take cross-sex hormones or, or is it just simply if you identify as that's enough, uh, do you have to have surgery? Like what is the, what is Linda knows all about it, but I can tell you that, it, that it, it, um, it, it differs, uh, depending on where you are. Uh, the, the IOC does have some, uh, rules, but in Canada, which is where we put most of our focus in the book, uh, there are no longer any rules. The guidelines um, in Canada come from the Center, uh, the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport, a body that was created after the doping scandal of 1988, uh, the Seoul Olympics, and it was created in order to ensure that sport remained both fair and free of uh, unethical or unsporting behavior. Um, and doping, of course, is the obvious one that, you know, they were thinking of at the time. Uh, but we consider what's happening now, allowing males with natural advantages uh, to, to, to enter women's competition um, as bad as doping in the sense that the advantage, in fact, the advantage, the male advantage post-puberty is greater than, say, something like the 10% advantage that uh, a, a doper might get, and and their rules, their, their guidelines. This uh, the CCES, the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport, uh, that came out in 2015. Um, their their guidelines say, 
as long as a, 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 an athlete says they identify as the other sex, they cannot be questioned, they don't have to be taking hormones, they don't have to even live socially uh, in the community, for the they don't have to have presented socially. Uh, they and moreover, this and this these guidelines have been taken up as as holy writ across Canada, high school, university, whatever. Um, and not only that, but their guidelines say it may be that an athlete uh, identifies as a male athlete identifies as a woman this season in one sport. <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah, yeah. But in the next season may identify as a male in another sport. So, you know, uh, and then they, uh, they do allude to, it's conceivable that people might, uh, you know, imposters might take advantage of these freedoms, you know, and of course, if it weren't so serious, you'd have to laugh at that. Oh, you think somebody might actually. Yeah. That's a, I mean, we had a doping scandal where we had athletes around the world cheating like mad on the advice of their coaches, you know. So it's so ludicrous because you yeah. could be a man with a beard and a mustache and six foot three uh, and, you know, with with all the characteristics and not even bother to change one little thing and just present yourself and say, I identify as a woman and I'm, I want to enter the 400 meter hurdles and, uh, you know. Right. My it's, like, it's like if you're if you're good enough, I could totally see uh, someone with a bad intent. Like if they're good enough to compete against men in one sport, they're going to compete as men. So they get that title of best, you know, but if they can't compete among, with men in another sport, it's like, well, I'll just sign up for the women's. Well, like, I think, yeah, I think it has happened uh, and yeah. I think it will continue to happen the more. Uh, observers see that there's no penalty and there's no even social punishment uh, for doing so. Why wouldn't you if, you know, so. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard because it's hard even to parody these people anymore because they mm -hmm. what they're doing is such a parody of themselves almost. Um, but I, I can I to say ask, something? Can I say oh, something? Yeah, please, please OK, jump in. so in mm -hmm. the book, we have a chapter on. Um, and I quote Barbara Kay, my co-author, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and we have a chapter about, you know, watching the gatekeepers. And so these Canadian experts in sport, one of the things that this expert working group, who are all the top leaders of sport at this Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport, was, you know, justifying their new policy. They literally said this. I'm going to quote it to you because it's just unbelievable. And it said the expert working group acknowledges the concern that trans women athletes who grew up biologically male and who do not undergo hormone, hormonal intervention may be at a competitive advantage when competing in high-performance women's sport. Nonetheless, it is recognized that trans females are not males who became females. Rather, these are people who have always been psychologically female, but whose anatomy and physiology, for reasons yet unexplained, have manifested <laughs> as male. <laughs> you cannot make this up. It's unbelievable. Yeah, really For reasons unexplained, they seem to be presenting as male. <laughs> it's really I, unbelievable. You know what? Can I, can I underscore something too? Because a lot of people look at um, the middle of the bell curve and they yeah. say like, well, I'm a couch potato and here's this female who's faster than me yeah. and better than me. So uh, 
you know, there's not that much of a difference. But when you're talking about the the tail end the tails, of that yeah. distribution, I mean, the elite athletes in that that are male are by and large well beyond the female end of the spectrum. It's 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 Wait. ridiculous. We're not talking about people in the middle. These aren't two couch potatoes kind of competing to do stuff <laughs> yeah. like these are the these are the elite athletes that you're talking about. And even someone you have a person in your book that you th I think you said they they went from 300 and something rank to first place. I don't even remember what's to, yeah. to champ 390th in the men's division NCAA 400 meter hurdles. Two, two years later, women's champion. Hooray, right. CC Telford. Right. And, and if you think about that, there's so there's literally hundreds of guys that could be the champion yeah. in the yes. female yeah. sport. Yeah. And and the coach of that person said with, with a straight face yet, uh, when interviewed, um, oh, I've never seen an athlete with such mental determination. That that was the key. <laughs> That, in the coach's estimation, was the key element from going from 390th to first place. It had nothing to do with physiology. Wow. Nothing. Wait, wait. wait. I, there's a, I have a defense of this, Barbara. It does take <laughs> mental determination to declare that you're a woman and stick to it enough. I guess. I guess. To do that. So there is a sense. In a sense, the balls, coach is correct. to do that. <laughs> It does. It's uh, involved. Uh, funny. <laughs> I, <laughs> funny. I, I think there's something really, I mean, we talk, Carter and I talk about this all the time in lots of different subjects lately about how it seems like we're living in this upside down world where projection is at limit, is at a level I've never seen before. Maybe I just couldn't say it before, but it's very Orwellian that you mentioned this, the CCES. Is that, is that what it's called? Yeah. Canadian Center for Ethics and Sports. Ethics and Sports. So this organization that was created for ethics in sports and was created mm -hmm. to make sure that it's a fair no and level playing field, no cheating, are the yeah. ones who are... Yep. They're, the, they're supposed to be the good guys <laughs> who are making sure there's no cheating, and yet they're the ones who yeah. are putting this forward and saying... You can't do satire anymore uh, nope. because life is too ironic, too full of... It's, you know, and the people that... I don't know, the people like Linda and I often talk about this. Uh, I've often said to Linda, so how did we escape this dragnet, you know, of yeah. being... How come we, we still think rationally and logically yeah. and we still actually need evidence you know um and there is evidence when you talk as you talked about the tail end we have all the numbers we have we all the have and we know who the fastest woman runner is and we know who the fastest male runner is and it's like you know yeah. we're not we're not talking about a tenth of a second here you know um so it's not like the evidence isn't there but it's like everybody else that's in authority and who's creating the policy is nodding as linda quoted you know for reasons we're not sure of, you know, and they'll say it with a straight face, but you, you kind of wonder if you woke them up at two o'clock in the morning and say, how many sexes are there? You know, well, two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, <laughs> you didn't record that, did you? <laughs> well, in fact, if you think about it just in general in society, I mean, you need the they actually need the binary more than anybody because how else would they transition into something else? I mean, right. That's that's the, you, that's the paradox, right? What what are you transing to if it's not dimorphic? Yeah, I mean, right? that's the thing that I don't understand is is that 
if we erased, you know, the entire boundaries, what would they be transitioning into? I mean, they need, this is the thing that I find really sort of troubling about the mentality itself. Um, I've, I, I used an analogy the other day um, on an interview about how, for me, the way it hits me is that suddenly we're supposed to be playing football on a field where you've taken away all the lines. So take away all the lines in sport. There's no way to have any meaning to whether what is the score or what's the, like you've taken the line. So what happens though, in, in terms of the dialogue and sort of the basic uh, dynamic here is that people like Barbara and I, we're, we're the people in sport that are required to keep the lines. So we, you know, out of bounds or whatever, that's, we still have to play by those rules, whereas they can hop around as if the boundaries don't exist. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. basically, there's a category of people in society now where they can just feel free to do whatever they want. They could wander off and catch the football 150 yards out of bounds and then bring it back in. And that's okay for them, but the rest of us still have to play by the rules so they can come back into the game and do whatever they want to do. So it's really like this two sets of, of rules, actually. Yeah. Yep. And, and this idea of inclusion, and that, of course, the rationale for all of this is they, as as also Linda quoted, they do admit uh, uh, there's the, an advantage they, that there is an advantage, but they feel that uh, the price that has to be paid is okay uh, because the value of inclusion trumps trumps the human rights of, or the sex-based human rights of women. Uh, and they'll say, they'll try to sort of fudge it and say, well, yes, uh, there is an advantage. But look, in sports, many people have advantages. Rich people are able to train, you know, at a, uh, with more resources than poor people. And they, they'll put it into, they'll sort of uh, kind of blur the lines between actual physiology and biology and, you know, uh, social conditions or, oh, you know, some men are taller than other men and just like some women are as tall as men. And they'll, they'll, there's answers for all these things. But for somebody who's listening at a very superficial level, yes, that's true. A lot of poor children yeah. can't do professionals. You know, they, they don't have the training. So this is just one more disadvantage. But they, it's, it's, it's not. One is primordial and one is fixable. You know, you can, yeah, you right. can give more money to poor children to to be included in sport and you'll fix that problem or, you know, widen your recruitment pool. I mean, there's ways to fix other uh, social or economic disadvantage. But uh, still, a poor a poor boy is going to beat a poor girl. So that's just so irrelevant. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And maybe we and it's not like we back. have poor people and rich people sports. I mean, that's the no. only way that analogy would work is they were like, if we if we divided sports instead of by, by male and female, if we had poor people and rich people sports and then rich people started identifying as poor so they could win <laughs> in the poor sports. Like, <laughs> well, no. we do have golf, which it's, is kind of in a yes, category. I mean, of you know, many sports, <laughs> some sports are far more expensive than others. I mean, if you're you want your kid to be a tennis champ. I mean, that's, you know, we're talking big bucks there. But I was going to recommend hockey because I, you guys are from oh, Canada. I grew up yeah. in upstate New York. Hockey was massively expensive. And sure. it there is an advantage to being wealthy if you want to play hockey. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but if you're a natural runner, then uh, you just keep running around your high school track. You know, you'll be, you so it's, it's true that, but that's irrelevant because as you say, you know, there's, 
there's rich hockey players that are girls and there's rich hockey players that yeah. are boys. So, so that, that, that is an irrelevant argument, but, yeah. but to the person who isn't listening with, you know, people, they don't have time. They, 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 and if somebody says something very sincerely and they're in a position of authority, like a sports sociologist say, mm-hmm. who uses these arguments, oh, well, you say, well, he's an authority. He must know. Um, and uh, it's very unfortunate that so many people that are in um, either academic disciplines or are policymakers at a governmental level uh, that you naturally assume they, they know what they're talking. And speaking of that level of authority, uh, Linda must tell you the story of how the IOC came to their um, to their policy. Uh, you know, people think, well, the IOC, this is an international organization. They have the benefit of experts, you know, and they must they, they must, must really study, know they must study this before they change the policy. They must consult with hundreds of the most expert people in the world. But. I, well, I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book is the way the IOC came to their decision to make a momentous, earth-shattering uh, change to Olympic sport. And, of course, everything trickles down from that. So I, I'd love for Linda to explain that to you. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> so so around, yeah, around 2000, 2000, uh, maybe by 2003, the the ideology was shifting a little and they allowed they made a really quiet decision at the the international olympic committee is what we're talking about made the decision that they would allow transsexuals into women's sports so males who had undergone the surgery lived as women for three years with their low hormones and then those people would be allowed okay into the women's game and um their assumption they even said it at the time they just didn't think <clears throat> there would be that many there would like the the uh the going through surgery and having all that there's so few men who would do that uh so they would just allow the few and there wouldn't be that many and so there was one guy uh one male born athlete or two who started to trickle into sport and then the one person was actually a canadian male cyclist who found that because he had been um gone undergone the surgery and removed testes and everything didn't even have the enough testosterone because he was born with a male body and now uh, uh, he was presenting as a woman and trying to go into women's cycling. Um, didn't even have enough testosterone to actually feel like they could train properly, like, you know, get the recovery going. So right away, um, Worley was the fellow's ma- name and he went into Kristen Worley, identified as woman. And then he started, um, essentially advocating for an exemption to take more testosterone because his body was desperately in need of testosterone, obviously because biologically male needed testosterone, so needed to have a little bit of an exemption. And so went through this whole human rights court, the United Cycling Union, uh, International Cycling Union, took them all to court on the human rights basis and said, I just need this medical exemption to be able to take testosterone. And so already, why didn't they just admit at that point, look, if you need all this testosterone because your body is male and you need it to train, then why don't we just admit you're male and put you back in the male section? <laughs> yeah, but that, instead of that, that instead of that, they said, oh, yeah, well, OK. So by 2015, the IOC just threw up its hands. The International Olympic Committee basically just threw up his its hands and said, OK, well, we're going to just 
do away with the requirement for surgery and we'll just let them have their testosterone slightly below 10 nanomoles per liter, which is still like eight nanomoles per liter higher than female athletes are allowed. Live as a woman for a year, whatever that means. And so that was the rule that they snuck in in 2015 without consulting much. In fact, the only person they consulted with, and this is what get, get Barbara's getting to, the only person they consulted with was another Canadian trans-identifying male who was a recreational runner named Joanna Harper. And around uh, 2006, 7, 8, where uh, Facebook and social media was just getting started, Joanna Harper wanted to sort of prove that with hormone replacement therapy, uh, a transgender, uh, a, a male transitioning to woman, if they took hormones, it would bring their running times down to the female, like the women's times. So Joanna Harper went about looking all over online and managed to find eight other trans identified males who had run long distance races as male in their 20s or 30s, transitioned and then later in life was their self-declared new running time, which happens to be lower and maybe the female, close to the female level. So like self-reported times, not peer reviewed, eight, uh, uh, eight athletes, eight male recreational runners who, who identified as women and self-identifying and self-declaring their times to have dropped, oh, the magical 50%. So now it looks like if you take hormones, it's going to make you completely uh, on par with the women, except one of the males actually improved over the 20 years. Uh, and he, he called that an outlier and left that number out. I say that in the book. They left the one number out that would have disproved his point. They called it an outlier and left it out of the average. And that, and it, that was a study published in um, Uncommon Ground or something. It's like one of those online publishing, which is like self, you don't have, it's not peer reviewed. And that's the person, Joanna Harper, that got invited onto the International Olympic Committee Medical Commission when they had to make a decision about whether, you know, to, to deal with this uh, new rule about just keeping your hormone level down a little bit, no surgery. And that's the person they invi invited onto their medical commission to just based on this one study of eight male runners. So basically an N of eight, a number of subjects, eight, it took an end of eight recreational male runners to change the international rules for all women's sport all around the world for women. And how dare that person be the one, Joanna Harper, a male person, be the one to be sitting in that seat and and having the International Olympic Committee listen to them because they're so, oh, oh, we've got this trans person did this great study. And basically lately when somebody was asking, well, don't you know that you still males, you know that males still have an advantage. And even Joanna Harper uh, himself said that this should only be applied to running, not other sports, because running, you know, the difference between men and women and running is like 10 or 15%, but the difference between, let's say, weightlifting is 50%. So really my reason- Yeah, distance running, not sprinting. Uh, yeah, not sprinting, just yeah. distance running. It should only be applied to distance running, but it looks like hormone replacement therapy brings it down at least for running and, and basically mitigates all the differences. When, when that question was put to Joanna Harper lately on Twitter, Joanna Har Harper's response was, well, we had to make a decision somehow. And so we just made the decision as if it's his right as a male person to sit there in the International Olympic Committee Medical Commission and be the one to make a rule change 
that applies to every sport in the world for all women in the world, every sport. Eight Can we just point that, out that that's not science and that doesn't even, I wouldn't even use the word study for what you just described. It's not even a study. It's an average. It's a survey of people. It's a survey, yeah, of self-reported yeah. results. It's yeah, and by the way, my mile time has doubled since I was, for 20 years ago, like, big freaking deal. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. older. So, <laughs> like, what do you want? <laughs> and by that's the right. way, uh, I can take, if you want a study where I report I'm slower after doing anything. I can give you that result. I am happy to run slower. But this is known to be selection bias. It's the the only thing that's worthy of study is a, a community study or random select. Like if you put out if you put out a, a call for you know we're looking for uh, a certain people know what result you're looking for. I mean, so the only people that are going to actually ask to be in your study. So it, it, the whole thing was so anti-science, not just non-science. It's anti-science. And the IOC bought it um, <clears throat> and never considered the consequences. And that's why uh, we're in a critical time right now, waiting for the first trans athlete who will be competing, which is Laurel, 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 Laurel Hubbard. Laurel Hubbard in weightlifting. Talk about coming back when you're older. He is older. Uh, he transitioned in 2013. Before that, he was a, a not international level uh, weightlifter in the male division at all. He was, I think, he was junior champ in New Zealand, which is a very tiny pool of weightlifters. Uh, but he would never have made it to the Olympics as a male weightlifter uh and is he came back um after many years out of the sport because he plateaued and now uh, here he is and and uh, there's tremendous interest obviously and he's likely going to get the gold or silver and frankly uh people like us would like him to get the gold to make the case to say okay now do you believe it i mean um we thought that the backlash would start happening thick and fast when uh, these high school girls yeah. were being beaten and when the college and, you know, and we kept waiting for the big backlash and the lawsuits and the, but I have to say, I'm, I'm quite shocked that Linda Blade is still the only coach, not only in Canada, but in the world who is publicly out there saying, what, how many coaches are there in the world? Like yeah. thousands and thousands and thousands. And, and she's the only one that has had the guts and, let the, me, and the principles to say, no, no. This yeah. Let me hazard a guess that you probably, you hear from other coaches who yeah. agree with you, but they're too afraid. That's right. They are afraid for their jobs or uh, what their social network's going to say about them. Um yeah. Yeah. Completely forgetting the fact that our main job as coaches is to protect our athletes and to represent our athletes and make sure that there's a fair and level playing field. Um, and, you know, frankly, now, because like in the policy that I ran into in 2018, I was on a previous show of yours about a year and a half ago. Uh, and where I was talking about how insane it was, I ran into this thing in 2018 and found, you know, I was at the national meeting and found out this policy and one of the interesting things about this policy in Canada is that um, not only are they allowed to just 
willy nilly just self-identify one season to the next, whatever, not have surgery, not have any kind of hormonal intervention, not even shave their beard if they don't want to. Um, and basically after they identify, so the way the policy is written that was being pushed at us at associations like mine was once they say what they are and they identify, then we're allowed to say anything. So wait, not, not only do we have to accept who they are on the, on the moment, but then we can't keep a record of it. We can't say anything. We can't share the information. It's uh, so they basically shut down the dialogue once that person it says who they are. So lo and behold, Barbara, I don't know if you know this, we have a new one in the Olympics. Now it happens to be Canadian. There's oh, now archery. Archery. It, it was just uh, Graham Linehan was paying attention closely to the an article in the Toronto Star and noticed that this archer from Canada, gosh, looked awfully male and uh, head and shoulders above the other females. And sure enough, when we looked at it, and now this person's name is Stephanie Barrett, and it's this person has been selected to represent to be Canada's woman archer in the Olympics in Tokyo, and this person has the same story pretty much um, in terms of just the age, thirty-five to thirty-seven years of age, transitioning later in life from male to to, to wanting to present as a woman. And suddenly, just to help affirm themselves, joined women's archery. And now they stand there with a stronger shoulder breadth and like stronger shoulder muscles can like get zip that arrow at the target uh, with probably much greater speed than the other women. So less susceptible to wind, re wind interference, and all that kind of stuff. Suddenly, you know, all of a sudden, some Canadian woman or some woman in the world didn't get a position in the Olympic Games. Uh, in Canada, it's, it might be uh, uh, Tanya Edwards is the next one in line, but it might have been somebody else in the world because of the global point system um, doesn't suddenly get to go to the Olympics because this person named Stephanie Barrett has has taken this position and, and excluded a woman. And and the stupid thing is, is the Center for Ethics and Sports calling this an inclusive policy. It's not inclusive when you're excluding women and females from their own sport. Maybe we should. I, I do want to want to step back here because it would be honest if the world said we're not going to we're not going to divide sports by sex yeah. and you're going to end up with male dominated sports. And that's the end. Not, but there's a reason that we decided a male sports. Would yeah, be there's right? a reason we decided to separate them. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's there and, and there's a good reason we decided to separate them. And I don't think people are seeing I think a lot of people look at this and they kind of feel like if it doesn't affect them personally, they're like, yeah, you know, whatever. Can you talk about the impact this has had for uh, on young women, both in high school and college and elsewhere, that like, there's a reason we have female sports? How are those people being affected? You know, before uh, Title IX in the United States came into that guaranteed women the rights to have the you know the same access to resources and to have more encouragement. Uh, female participation in sports was I don't know the number, but it was very low, uh, yeah. and it skyrocketed after that. Once women started to be encouraged, and so it's the trajectory has basically been only about about thirty to forty years of actual women flourishing in sport, uh, and now you're going to see this constriction because anybody should have the imagination to think what's a little girl 
you know, a kid on a soccer team, um, how many times is, you know, she going to have the uh, ball flattening her like on the ground because a boy can kick it like twice as hard and fast. And, you know, they're, they're going to get discouraged. They're going to be fearful. We know that we know from anecdotal evidence, we have some in the book um, yeah. of kids. They, they, they don't want, they, they, they don't want to be on the field with the boy, with the male bodies. Like they get it very quickly um, that you can get hurt. Uh, and, and anyways, it's psychologically intimidating, uh, you know, to be with someone, it's like a 13-year-old girl having to compete against a 17-year-old girl. Like, there's a huge difference. Um, so it's happening already, and it's going to keep happening. Um, if this doesn't turn around quickly, our fear is, we were very happy that the book came out at least before the Olympics. Our fear is that, that there'll be a tipping point when it will be no longer possible to pull back because you'll have too many people invested in the myth, um, and and they won't be able to. Uh, and at that point, um, the evidence will all be there that the women are fading, and that the uh, but then it'll they'll have committed themselves, and it will just be male sports again. Well, it yeah. will be uh, it will be a lost generation, I would say, because we're so, a good example in the book is we talk about uh, what's happened in in the uh, roller derby, like women's roller derby in certain parts of Canada, you know, and that's kind of a fringe sport for some people. Uh, but, you know, already when you interview the females who have self-excluded from the roller derby, whenever there is a ma males got start getting involved in self-identifying into women's roller derby, all of a sudden you run into females who just drifted away because they got hurt, yeah. uh, they got injured. And in that sport, because it's a contact sport, you kind of expected to that maybe you might get hurt. So the women who get hurt because really badly because there's a male in that in that race, um, they just walk away because they don't feel they have a right to complain. They, they're in a sport where they were going to maybe get injured anyway. So then there's a lot more just walking and drifting away because they don't feel like it's it's un, they feel it's unsporting of them to complain about injuries because that's part of roller derby. Like if you just get injured too badly, you just disappear. But now here's another thing I we have to think about. World Rugby uh, pushed back finally last year, last fall. They they did a review of the data and realized not a single study showed that taking you know hormone replacement therapy caused the males to diminish their advantage, which would result in a possibility of twenty to thirty percent increase in head and neck and back spinal injuries to female players in rugby because it's you know collisions and contact. So what World Rugby did they made the brave decision to say international rugby will not allow male bodies into the female elite game, but they threw the dog a bone in terms of the national unions, the rugby unions, USA rugby, Canada rugby, Australia rugby. They basically tipped their hat to them and said, well, you can do whatever you want in your communities. Men can self-identify at the community level if you want, but internationally, they won't be allowed. But here's what's going to happen. I would predict this because I've seen it. I'm a coach in the system. If, if World Rugby is going to tell nationals, like the rugby unions, that they can they can go ahead and allow males into the game at community level where the athletes get started, guess what's going to happen? Same thing. You're going to be, you're basically weeding out the girls that really good, talented ones might get really hurt, injured. You're not suing rugby, which is a big risk, but 
but they'll get hurt, walk away. So now basically you've depleted your talent pool so that by the time women get to the international game, and now they are actually women competing against women, it's going to look pathetic because your best talent has been weeded out along the way because they've been destroyed along the way because of male bodies. And, and so what I'm going to say is it's going to make international women's rugby look really pathetic in about five or six years or 10 years because yeah. – Who's going to end up showing up? Like half of your best talent has all already been injured and left the sport. So it, it yeah. doesn't do women any any service internationally because it just looks bad. I mean, it's just the players that end up showing up look wor- even worse compared to the men because you've, you've weeded out a lot of talent along the way. Yeah. Can you guys talk a little bit about uh, how, do, how do the two of you come together to write this book? And... How hard was it to get this published? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, it was real easy to get it published <laughs> because uh, we were actually, uh, it was actually semi-commissioned um, in the sense that uh, Linda and I had got to know each other because uh, uh, I got interested in the subject when I, and when I saw that Linda was out there being public about it, uh, I, I was, I forget the... The, the first time we met, but I, but I was encouraging Post millennial. We had an article in post millennial. Well, I, I know what it was. Uh, Linda said to me, uh, gee, I wish you'd write a, a, a piece in the post millennial and I'll give you the talking points and all that. And I said, you know, it would be much more authoritative coming from you. I'm just a, someone doing research. You, you're living this and you should write the, oh, but I, I'm not a journalist. I said, I'll help you. Like, you know, and mm-hmm. not a writer. <laughs> well, she said she wasn't a writer, but I have to say she's a very quick study. So I said, write, write what comes out of you. Don't worry about the form and I'll help edit it and yada, yada. So we went through, you know, and it was actually wasn't bad to begin with, but I, I sort of edited and we went back and forth on it. Uh, that was the first thing she wrote. It was a fantastic piece for the post millennial. And by the next time she started writing, she already had absorbed a lot of the format rules and, and she, she's a good writer. She's a good writer now. Um, so that was the beginning. And then I wrote a piece that sort of was a follow on from that. Um, and at the same time, um, Ezra Levant from rebel news had said to me, you know, I'm putting out these short books um, on controversial subjects. And if there's anything you've got to pitch, uh, I'd love to have you write something. I said, well, I, uh, there's a subject I want to pitch, but I don't want to be the writer. I want to be the co-writer or the, the secondary writer. I, you know, I want the lead writer to be an authority. And I think this Linda Blade, who's brave and courageous and doing all this stuff, he said, great, as long as your name's on the book. I said, it's going to be on the book, uh, but, but she's going to be the one that's, you know, he said, great. Write it. So we <laughs> So it was a joint effort, but all the the knowledge part comes from Linda, and a lot of the uh, and we the writing is a joint thing, and the formatting and the uh, brainstorming about which chapter is going to go where and what has to be first and what oh should we add this or should we it was it was a really fun collaboration and uh, it really was well yeah it really went well for both of us we uh, never had a an argument about anything it was it was a great experience for me and um and i know for linda it's a point of pride to have got this out uh professionally uh and we know and what's great about it is we know that it is part of the literature now at 
Sport Canada and um, the people at the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport have had to write <laughs> bullets on this. I think they are grinding their teeth over it. Wow. Which is good. Which is good. <laughs> and, yeah. and so it's now, it's now part of the, it's in the stew of, um, because things at the upper levels uh, of sport policy in Canada are still kind of in flux. Uh, nothing's in set in stone. Um, so uh, we're thrilled that this book has, is being taken into consideration uh, before things do get cemented into place. Now, I will say... Optimistic? Oh, sorry, I, go ahead. I will say one thing before you jump in for with another question, though. Um, well, first of all, huge, it was a huge honor, I mean, to get to know Barbara and to have her help and mentorship. It's just amazing. I I read articles of hers in the newspapers for years, and I just thought she was clever. Never in a million years would I have thought she had asked me to collaborate on something. So it was a huge honor. And, uh, of course, got to thank Rebel News for uh, taking a chance on me as an author. I uh, hadn't written a book before in terms of this. I wrote a PhD thesis, but that's technical writing. So that leads me to the point of saying quickly, I'll say it. Initially, I was so worried about technical being too technical that it was a bit too chatty. And remember, Barbara, the first six chapters were, it was a bit chatty. Um, we were writing it for soccer moms and, and hot dads, you know, just trying to keep it at a sort of a conversational level. And it was a little bit too mm, schmarmy or something. So... At some point, Barbara and I made the decision, yeah, I, I think it is worth it putting a little bit more technical information in. Um, we had submitted it in November already for publication, but then when Joe Biden came out with his executive order, um, we had to take it back from the publisher and put in the last chapter on Joe Biden's uh, executive order. Um, and so then that was in February writing that. So there were a lot of different sort of permutations and differences in tone that we went through writing this book. And I, I keep saying, I'm really hoping it's a good balance between some science, some technical information, but mixed in with good storytelling. And um, I, re I met a woman this today, because uh, I'm on holidays in Vancouver here, and she, she's in the library. She's one of the librarians of Vancouver Public Library. And she basically has just finished reading it. And she told me uh, that it's really, really a very well-balanced book. So I, I'm quite pleased with it, actually. I'm glad. Well, like I said, I, I've I'm only read the that for the first time. So thank you uh, for yeah. sharing that, Linda. That's great news. Good. I wanted to sneak that in there. I thought you'd appreciate it. I do. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've only read the first couple of chapters, but it's very readable, and there's real thank information you. in it. It's not just uh, like it doesn't right. feel like just someone mouthing off their opinion. There's like actual information in there and it's, That's it. cool, so. you, want it, you want it to stay reader friendly, uh, but you, you don't want it to be lightweight. We, right. uh, I mean, I'm glad we took the time to, yeah. to, uh, we did a lot of rewriting, which is normal yeah, book and, mm -hmm. uh, it paid off, I think. Right. So, and I, it I speaks to the collaboration. It speaks to the collaboration. It, it really, it really was a really very balanced effort. So I'm really encouraged that there's someone like Rebel who is looking to publish things that might be considered controversial in the upside down world that we're in, um, because I was expecting to hear that it was hard to get it published. And I I wanted to know if you... I don't think anybody else in Canada would have published it. They would not have. Yeah, Nobody. they would not have. And I just saw today, I wonder what kind of pushback you've received. I, I would like to hear some 
of the negative responses and some of the positive responses, because I just saw today the American Booksellers Association put out uh, a notice saying uh, they basically it was an apology. They said an anti-trans book was included in our July mailing to members. This is a serious, violent incident that goes against our policy. And they go on to, and I, I found out they were talking about Abigail Schreier's book, apparently. What? So, oh, wow. uh, she a violent incident. So she's taken so many hits with that book. Although, of course, the more the more that happens, the more books she sells. So you know, but but violent. It's such a great book, and it's so so. The tone is it's so loving. Beautiful. It's so level headed, and it's so compassionate. Really, I mean, yeah, it's, very compassionate. Nobody's read anybody that's criticized that book has not read it. That's a hundred percent because you can't come away from that book. And but it's so interesting that. The fear uh, anybody in the publishing world has of touching that third rail. So I knew there was no point in writing a book on spec that was, you know, and then then pushing it to publishers and getting rejected. That so this was like manna from heaven. I mean, it was hey, yeah. write a book, yeah, but it's it's very controversial. Great, write it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really a blessing actually to have a publisher that was driving to get this done and wanted to get it out there and have a different form of narrative happen. And I have had thousands of comments um, uh, and privately um, and through the various podcasts, you know, um, on YouTube and stuff. And about, I would say good 95% of commentary is completely supportive um it's amazing and this this you know everybody has said that the sports issue may be the tip of the 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 arrow in terms of the head of the spear like in terms of starting down this path of of distinguishing between uh biological uh sex-based rights versus human rights of self-identifying peoples and how do we parse that out i think that's a, 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 a conversation that we definitely have to have in society but the thing is, it's, the pendulum swung way too far, and I think everybody's seeing it in sports now, and a lot of people are just saying this is disgusting and ridiculous. Like, how in the world did we get here? Of the ones that actually lash back at me, it's either complete um, invective as far as, like, just terrible language and accusations and hurling the F-bombs and, like, just somebody who's just angry or people who clearly didn't read the book or saying things that I've said that didn't happen. So the ones who read the book like it, and there's a lot of, I have trans colleague, trans identifying colleagues who are very grateful because the trans activists who are, you know, pushing for males and female sports are not doing anybody any favors. Even the trans community is afraid of the backlash that's going to happen because this is so unrealistic. And, so I have a lot of support even from, from a lot of the trans community. Um, and so it's a, it's a tiny, tiny minority of people who are angry. They want to push themselves across the boundaries. Uh, no questions asked. The rest of us have no rights. Um, and, you know, those people, I almost feel like, you know, I don't know. I, it just doesn't bother me at all because it's pretty clear that there's some sort of a uh, just – a mental, I'm not going to say mental illness, but just there, there's a, a, a psychological angst involved in it that 
probably has nothing to do with anything I said. Yeah. Um, it, it, so, you know, I, I, I feel so much support, to be honest. I feel a lot of support. And it, I hear a lot of support coming back. And I'm most appreciative. So I'm so happy that Barbara and Rebel News and everybody gave us this chance to get this information out. Um, and uh, reference, if you, once you get, start reading the book in your book club, you will see that everything's re referenced to the nth degree because, you know, we have to be careful that whatever we say has to be supported. And um, so we, we really went out of our way to make sure that would happen. And um, I think it's a pretty fair book. So are you positive? Are you um, optimistic about what's happening in the future for women's sports? Do you think it's going to change? Or are you pessimistic and you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? I'm I think it's going to get a little bit worse. <laughs> I think so. I, I'm by nature, a more, well, I call myself a realist, which I think automatically means you're a bit of a pessimist. Um, and it's better to be that way so that you're, you're, you're nicely surprised if it goes the other way. But I am pessimistic in the short term. It's mm -hmm. going to be a Me too. It's going to be a huge battle. If things are going to turn around, it's going to be a very ferocious uh, battle to get it right. These people are are organized, uh, well-funded, and ruthless. So yeah. they're not up against, you know, a bunch of like, uh, you know, just individuals. This is a movement. This is a movement. Um, I, I, to me, it's like the, uh, the, the, the sport equivalent of sport, I mean, it, and other areas to this, but it's a sport equivalent of Antifa. Like, you know, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I also appreciate that you said you drew a distinction, Linda, between uh, trans people and the people who are pushing trans sports, because mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And, and they oftentimes, the people who are pushing this, what I view to be an ideological agenda, part of an overall ideological agenda, they, they want to claim to speak on behalf of different groups that they don't represent. So it's like, That's they it. want to pretend that they are trans people and maybe some of them are trans, but th that's not who's pushing this. They don't speak for all trans people. And some of the loudest voices I've heard against um, trans women or biological men participating in women's sports are trans voices. It's so, true. Yeah, I'm glad you made that that distinction. Mm -hmm. And I and Barbara, I just want to say that's where I'm at on everything recently. Is I'm pessimistic <laughs> in the short term, but very optimistic in the long term. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you're young, so you may actually see your uh, dream come true. Um, I don't have that much time left, so if it <laughs> so, let's say I'm I'm pessimistic for my lifetime, <laughs> but maybe you should be yeah. In that case, have you looked into collapsitarianism? Because they're trying to speed it all up. Life <laughs> <laughs> is already speeded up. You know, when you get older, yeah. it's true. Life, life does seem to speed up, and that's that's a fact. Um, so uh, I'm not looking to speed it up anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you have a little bit of the collapsitarianism going on already because you both really want the New Zealand weightlifter to get the gold. That's right. That's a, that's a collapsitarian mindset. It's oh, like, I you see, know what? I Just see. do okay. it. So that people can see how horrible it is now and get it over with. Otherwise, this is going to drag on for okay, a long time. I've never time. heard that term before, but I will, <laughs> I will uh, keep, have to look that up. Actually, <laughs> see if it's a real thing, you know. Uh, so. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I just will say, like you, Barbara, I'm a, I, I view myself as a realist, but it turns out that 
even in my lifetime, and I am younger than you, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be pessimist in my life. To, like, I'm hoping my children live in a different world. But <laughs> this is a this is a long. These battles are long. Yeah, right? this didn't happen overnight. This no. happened, you know, over decades. It took decades. Yeah. 20, 30 years. We were only seeing a tip of a very big iceberg. And I, you have mm-hmm. kids, and I have grandchildren that are, you know, just in their teens. One, a very serious hockey player. I mean, so this is my motivation is to see my athletic grandchildren. Um, they're all girls, five, uh, that nothing should stand in their way. And certainly not this. I mean, not this injustice. That's so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. naively think if we just renamed women's sports to female sports, the arguments would fall go away. But I, I know that's not what would happen. <laughs> well, our solution in the book literally does say – um, really, we can keep a binary that's completely inclusive by having two categories, female restricted to the biological female and open. And yeah, open sure. means anybody like male, trans, anybody who's female plus extra is in the open. So even if you're a trans identifying female who happens to want to be identifying as a man right now, those people still stay in the women's sports. But if they want to take testosterone dope and go up to the open category and compete there. And, you know, uh, I think that makes it completely inclusive. Uh, so that's what would happen if we want to keep the binary. If you want to make more categories, that's a different story. But even when we, interestingly here, and this, this speaks to what Carrie was talking about, when you offer a third category, like the middle, the, tra- the trans community, like people like Joanna Harper, will not accept that. Because yeah. the males who are identifying, particularly later in life, they literally need to be in the women's category to self-affirm. So they need to be in with the women as a sort of a social affirmation exercise. Therapy for them. It's therapy for them. It's social therapy. So they're using sport as a form of social therapy. They're saying, I want to be in this with the women so that I can be accepted as a woman. So if you say, well, we'll we'll give you a separate category. Well, that defeats the whole purpose. They can't be in with the women. So, but yeah. then, as I pointed out, the last time I was talking to you, Carter and Carrie, was if you take that logic down to its to its final conclusion, it may be okay for one or two of them when they come in, but pretty soon it'll be more and more males self-identifying to the point where the entire female final will be ma- males who are trans-identified males, and now they're not going to be happy because they're just going to be surrounded by males and they're not going to get the affirmation they seek anyway. Meanwhile, they've destroyed women's sports and they'll probably end up going somewhere else because they can't get the affirmation there anymore because it's just full of males. So when you take this to the degree, it almost seems like, you know, it's going to take almost a complete destruction of the women's, the female athletes space before they'll move on. And then everybody will realize, oh, gosh, that was a big mistake, wasn't it? So I worry that will be like a 10 or 20 year period of time before we get through all this madness and reestablish the sex-based boundaries. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it comes much faster than that, but I think it might have to be self, you know, the, the uh, self apparent at the end, once you let this experiment run out, play out. Yeah. It's, it's almost 1984 ish in that what yeah. they really want is for you to say, there's no difference between them and a biological female. That's what they want. Yes. Yeah. And um, it'll never be true. They can't. Yeah, it'll right. That true. will never be true. So they'll never be happy. Yeah. Right. And they'll never be. And so meanwhile, they'll destroy sport for an entire generation 
of girls, but also sport in general. As I point out, Barbara, and I had this discussion, why didn't you say uh, destroying women's sport as part of, like, it's just destroying sport. Yeah. We didn't say destroying women's sport. The reason is because at ground level, when you make this stupid rule, you're putting coaches, officials, everybody's at risk of saying the wrong thing, especially in Canada with our laws. So what happens is all the volunteers just disappear and you can't host competitions for little boys or little girls. And in my association, that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about protecting parents, coaches, officials, anybody who volunteers at the, at the grassroots level in sport, we're going to lose our, all of our capacity to actually run the sport for boys and girls. If we make it an uncomfortable thing where, or they're in legal jeopardy just to try to, navigate the language around being forcing, involved in sport. You're forcing, you're forcing an entire industry or shouldn't be called an industry, but you're yeah, to, to be a liar to participate in it. Like everybody yeah, you have to lie. You have to lie on a routine basis in order to be a stakeholder in sport. And uh, that's that is the essence of totalitarianism is to yes. force people to continually lie um, and then it becomes you, you are punished if you won't. It's the two and two equals five thing. I mean, it is Orwellian. There's a reason yeah. that people keep referring to Orwell when we talk about what's going on, uh, because it's, and we start with a quotation from Orwell, double think, mm-hmm. to, to yeah. know something is true and to believe it's true at this, you know, to know something is not true, but to be forced to believe it's true at the same time. So it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a corruption of our minds and soul. Mm-hmm. It's soul destroying. Um, yeah. So we destroy the meaning of sport. It destroys yeah. the meaning of what you're doing. And so I'm worried that it will get to the point where even community and school sports, like people will just start opting out in general, just because it's just too, it's too rot. Yeah. 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 I wonder if you, if we, if you could envision a future where, like you said, it, it goes too far to come back from. And then, you know, if future generations decide to say, okay, you can have women's sports, we're going to create another category for women minus extra. <laughs> and like, well, you just recreate it, but they would be upset that, yeah. wait, but we want to be in women minus extra. Yeah, no, no, there's no, there's no, there's no easy fix to this problem. No. Um, I'm actually, uh, I have a five o'clock scheduled other meeting. So. That's no. fine. We have to wrap up. No, it's been yeah. wonderful, but I, I, I hadn't realized. <laughs> no, <laughs> we look, have such a good we time really appreciate chatting. your time. No, yeah. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Um, but I, 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 uh, <laughs> Go for well, Barbara. I, I, I got you. I yeah. Tell you. everybody one last time where they can find info on your book. The book is called unsporting and you can find it at unsporting.com 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 thank you ladies so much for being with us today thank you Karen Carter it's been a great pleasure and an honor yeah great chatting with you again okay (laughs) take care care. have a great summer bye guys Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate.
You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to its thinky talk. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and will be recycled as part of our sustainability program. Don't be sad. You can't make an omelette without purging all dissidents. Honestly, I am worried that you have been exposed to extremist content. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.